Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. And let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 1. And after the uproar has ceased, Paul put unto him the disciples, and embraced them, and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts, and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to send to Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. Paul was a man on a mission, and I think it was John Wesley who travelled around 500,000 miles a year, and uh, he wasn't the only person to cover land and sea. There was also a man called Robert Chapman back in the 19th century who walked the entire length of Ireland. On top of that, he would walk across Spain at least once. It is somewhat interesting when we assess men of old, men of God, that put their entire lives into the preaching of the gospel. And I think today's brothers, and I include myself, are so easily distracted with television, internet, radio, and what have you. But those great men of old, Wesley, Chapman, and others, would spend their entire lives crisscrossing the globe, getting people saved, trying to receive a full reward from our blessed Lord, and of course, leaving us a great legacy. But Paul has gone from Macedonia to Greece, and he spends three months on his way to preach to the Believing Jews and Gentiles, his ministry was twofold. On the one hand, he was sent to the Gentiles, and yet, all too often, he would preach to the Jews as well. This would be a great chapter to uh, listen to after it's finished, with your Bibles opened and closely examining your maps. But let's read on, please. Verse 4. And they accompanied him into Asia, Sopater, Operia, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia Thycaeus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. They tarried for us. The us, of course, is Paul and Dr. Luke. Luke comes and goes. And some commentaries would have you believe that because he was a Gentile, the Jews were not interested in detaining him. I'm not overly sure about that. They thought nothing of putting roadblocks up when it came to other men of God throughout the Acts of the Apostles. But here, the focus goes back to Paul and Luke. And Troas, once again, has been cited. Now, Troas was Luke's birthplace. And like I said last time, Luke is a bit of an enigma to us. We're not told much about him. And uh, when the scripture is silent, we shouldn't speculate. Look at 6, please. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. The early church were Jewish for the most. And therefore what you're going to read today are Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ keeping their feast days. And on top of that, meeting on the first day of the week, which of course is today, to break bread. But by the end of the first century, the Jewish believers had either died away or receded. And the Gentile believers had replaced them. And by the second and the third and the fourth century... I'd say it's probably fair to say around 98% of those that professed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ were Gentiles. And that's why Paul wrote Galatians, because Gentile believers were trying to do religion. They were keeping feast days. They were attempting to be more religious than was necessary. And they were falling from grace as a result of doing that. And here it speaks about how we sailed away from Philippi 
after the days of unleavened bread, being passed over, of course, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. As I say, Paul was a man on a mission, and he had a great love for the church. He would spend days, sometimes months. In fact, you saw that back in verse 3 with the disciples. And yet sometimes it's not easy to spend a lot of time with like-minded people. We're always so busy, and yet if we can find time for one another, we should do. We should carry each other's burdens. We should pray for each other. We should intercede for each other. Look at 7, please. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Can you imagine a typical preacher, or a priest, or a vicar, preaching until midnight? I mean, seriously, how many men do you know that could preach about Jesus Christ until midnight? The early church put us to shame. The early church would meet every Sunday morning around dawn, normally at a local hillside, and they would wait for the sun to come up. They would do that in remembrance of the Lord's resurrection. And they would meet for many hours of service. As I say, they would start at a local hillside, and once the sun had come up, they would be worshipping and thanking the Lord for saving them. And then no doubt they would go back to their homes or their uh, friends' homes and break bread, have a great meal. And therefore you got Paul preaching until midnight. This is quite remarkable because most preachers, and I've seen this myself, once they have preached their message, have got nothing to say. Some years ago, Patrick and I went to a meeting and this brother got up and he preached on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 concerning the rapture, of course, the blessed hope. And he preached about 35 minutes. And after he finished preaching, he came down from uh, the platform. He came down from the stage and he sat with us and he literally dried up. He had nothing to say. It was quite remarkable. It's like one of those clocks you wind up. And once the clock runs out of steam, once it uh, decreases, once it uh, winds down, it becomes kaput. And it was quite amazing to watch this brother who started off a lot of energy, a lot of interesting points, full of zeal. But the moment he finished preaching, he had nothing to say. And therefore I think to myself, why are so few Preachers unable to preach on great substance, on great material, concerning the things of the Lord. But I'm more interested in verse 7, how it starts off by telling you, upon the first day of the week. Now the first day of the week in Israel is Sunday. The Israeli cabinet meet on a Sunday to plan their week ahead. In the UK, the British government meet on a Tuesday. But from my perspective, I'm thinking to myself, how fascinating it is that the first day of the week would be the birth of the church. Christ goes into the tomb and he comes up the first day of the week, very early on the first day of the week, and that commences the New Testament. That commences the New Covenant. On top of that, the Holy Ghost came in the Apostles on the day of Pentecost, which again is the first day of the week. So we, as New Testament Bible-believing Christians, worship the Lord. We, we can remember the Lord's gift of everlasting life and top of that we break bread on the first day of the week we're not sabbath keepers the sabbath was given to the children of israel and on top of that you were told that if you didn't keep the sabbath you were put to death on top of that you were told not to make any financial gain on the sabbath as well and i like to ask my sabbath keeping friends those that have businesses those that have websites do you switch your websites off from friday sundown to saturday sundown 
Because if you don't, you are making financial gain, which is the whole point of the Sabbath. On top of that, you were told that your entire family were to abstain from any work on the Sabbath. Of course, you know that such people are very much under the old covenant. So when it says on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, that's you and I, we are disciples, to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. But before that, they are keeping the feast day of unleavened bread. So what you got are two things. You got the Jewish apostles keeping the feast days because they are Jews. And on top of that, they are meeting on the first day of the week. Now, we do the latter. We don't do the former because we're not Jews. And I can't stress it enough. We are spiritual Jews in a sense. We are grafted into the root. That's true. But Jews per se, we are not. Let's read on, please. Verse 8. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And he was dead. He was literally dead. And don't let somebody come along and tell you that he was just unconscious or he needed to be resuscitated. No, he died. This young man was no doubt overcome with all of the lights from verse 8, which, of course, would create heat, which make you tired. And on top of that, he's listened to Paul preaching for many hours. Because he's young, he's fallen asleep. And it says, A Eutychus, fallen into a deep sleep, fell down from the third loft. I love the attention to detail. And was taken up dead. Now listen, Paul was an apostle. Paul saw the third heaven. Paul would write at least 13, maybe 14 epistles. Well, that man forgot, we will never know. On top of that, we, as Bible believers are not expected to do what Paul did. And I can't stress this enough because people think that what they read in Acts of the Apostles is for them today, and it's not. If it was, you wouldn't need the epistles, would you? I mean, just think for one moment. You've got the four Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, and Revelation. Let's just say that's all you had, and you took out all the other epistles. Then you might have a case to suggest that what we read in Acts would be relevant for us today, but that's not the case. That's why Paul wrote the epistles. And I'll say this very briefly, that I think... The four Gospels and Acts very much feel like the Old Testament. In fact, I said this before, I said it again, that for me, I think Acts is the unofficial fifth Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that the four Gospels were given to the Jews under the law. That's why we need to be careful when we exegete the Gospels. We take spiritual application from the Gospels. We don't teach the material as doctrine. And yet saying that, I will say this, that there are parts of the Gospels which we must take and apply to be doctrinally for us today, like John chapter 3 concerning the new birth. Look at verse 10, please. And Paul went down, and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Paul here pictures Elijah, and also Elisha, because it says how he fell on him. And that's pictured back in the Old Testament, when Elijah and Elisha are allowed to resurrect the dead. In fact, I'll say this very quickly that most of what you read in the Old Testament, believe it or not, doesn't concern supernatural gifts. And therefore, when Enoch is raptured, that's a remarkable event. But on top of that, when Elijah starts preaching and doing miracles, that's quite rare. On top of that, when Elijah was raptured and went back to heaven, Elisha replaces him. He continues his ministry and he too does miracles. But again, they don't quite match what Elijah did before him. Because miracles in the Old Testament were pretty rare. And therefore when Christ arrived and uh, for three and a half years preached the gospel, what he did was remarkable. 
I mean, you know, you thought Moses was something special, part of the Red Sea and uh, leading 1.6 million Jews out of Egypt into the Promised Land, and it was. But when Christ arrived, he did something which you'd never seen before. He pretty much banished sickness from Israel. But Paul, expecting, anticipating a miracle, says his life is in him. And I'll say this very quickly, that if you want to put the case forward that the Jewish apostolic sign gifts are still for today, then ask yourself this. When was the last time you healed everybody without any failures? In fact, how about starting with yourself? Most Christians that I know have got some ailment, they've got some issue, they've got some problem. I don't know many saved people that are completely uh, free of any sickness or illness or disease. We're all living to die, which is very true. And yet here Paul knows, because he is an apostle, he was commissioned that a miracle was imminent. And yet I say this, that for those that hold to the gifts being for today, you've got to be so careful. I remember speaking to a charismatic some years ago, and he came over to me and he was trying to put me right on my beliefs that the Jewish apostolic sign gifts are not for today. And I said to him, there's a blind man over there playing his guitar. He's a busker. He's pretty well known in the northwest of England. And he needs a guide dog to help him get around. And I said to this man, go over Lay your hands on that man and give him his eyesight. I'll tell you something, that'll make the news. And that guy gave me every, every excuse under the sun. He wasn't interested. He said, well, that guy needs to come over to me or he needs to have faith to be healed. I said, no, no, no. Most of the people that the Lord Jesus Christ healed had no faith to be healed. In fact, there's an account back in John 18 when they come to arrest the Lord. And the Lord says to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they all fall backwards. And I think Judas would probably have been amongst that group that fell backwards. And one of the associates of the temple guards gets his sword out to detain the Lord. And Peter steps in to defend the Lord. And Peter slices off his ear. Now that man wasn't saved. And the Lord gets that man's ear and puts it back on his head. No faith involved. So watch these people who try to put a smoke screen up when it comes to needing faith to be healed or to receive a blessing from the Lord. But here Paul falls on him concerning this young man, Eutychus, embraces him and said, trouble not yourselves, don't worry, don't panic. A great miracle is about to happen, for his life is in him. 11, when he therefore was come up again and a broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. He's been preaching all night. And this goes back to my earlier comments about the lack of men today that are born again having anything to really talk about. I remember listening to a preacher some years ago. He went to summer in Central Asia and he preached for, I think, two hours on eschatology and he said 10,000 people had come to hear him. And the moment he finished preaching, they said, more. And he preached another two hours and they said, more. And he preached another two hours and they said, more. <laughs> and he said, I was sweating, I was hot, I was drained it was humid and more people were coming and he said i was on my feet for 12 hours Twenty thousand people had come to hear the preacher preach you wouldn't get 12 people coming to hear a typical uk preacher preach i'm ashamed to say and yet paul had so much to preach and it's great when you come across men who are saved who are anointed to preach the word of god and who can preach until the cows come home and yet we are so lacking that today. 12. 
and they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. The latter part of that is interesting to me and were not a little comforted. Probably concerning Paul's departure from them. It wouldn't be in reference to the boy that had been resurrected because Paul was greatly beloved. And uh, if you have somebody who is a Bible teacher, who is an evangelist, who preaches the word of God and is faithful to scripture, I'm uh, pretty sure you love him as well. I'm pretty sure you think the world of him, but uh, such people are far and few between. 13, please. And we went before to ship and sailed unto Seuss. They're intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed binding himself to go afoot. Paul wants to get to where he needs to get to. He's going to bypass this route, this uh, shipping route, which would have taken longer to reach his destination. And to save me time, please uh, go to the maps in the back of your Bible and you can trace the route that uh, Paul would have taken. Uh, and you can see that he was very much a man on a mission. And here again, the pronouns are we. No doubt Paul and Luke and Timotheus and Trichaeus and Trophimus from verse 4 are probably traveling with Paul. What also fascinates me is how the Holy Ghost not only names these men, but how the writer, being Dr. Luke, wants to include them into his narrative. Most religions, most cults, are very uh, selfish about sharing the glory of their leaders. Most religions, if you have ever researched them, speak about prophet A or prophet B. You very rarely hear about person A, B or C, meaning their associates or their lieutenants. And yet here you've got at least five or six men that have been cited with Paul. And uh, it just fascinates me that we are even told of such people. 14, and when he met with us at Asus, we took him in and came to Mit Alinei. And we sailed thence and came the next day over against Chaos. The next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogolium. The next day we came to Miletius. But Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. Once again, Paul is focused on the feast days. And I think this does continue to throw certain people into confusion. A lot of people don't quite know what to do with all these feast days. And yet, as I keep saying, we are not expected to keep the feast days. This goes back to the Sabbath. This goes back to the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Ten Commandments were part of the Old Covenant, meaning they're part of the civil, ceremonial, and religious law, the moral law. If you start to break up the Old Testament, um, you lose a lot of truth. At the same time, if you try to implement parts of the Old Testament for the day, you're going to cause not only confusion, but you're going to backload the gospel. And very briefly, that would be somebody coming along and preaching, you need to be saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, if you don't live it, if you don't remain holy, if you don't do the Old Testament rules and rituals, over 600 of them, you'll lose your salvation. And they force the Bible to clash. But I won't spend too much time trying to undo the damage that such people do. But here, Paul wants to get to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Because he wants to preach to the Jews. On top of that, he was a Jew. So there's nothing wrong with Paul keeping Pentecost, 16, 11 bread, 7, and other feast days, which we read about in the previous chapters. But when you and I try and do that as saved Gentiles, I put it to you this morning that we fall from grace. 17. And from Miletius, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, not the pastor, but the elders 
of the church. A typical first century assembly would consist of a group of men, like Acts chapter 6, and also there's a passage which I was reading this morning from uh, Deuteronomy. Let's see if I can quickly find it. I think it's worth just uh, showing you where Moses speaks about needing to uh, pick out men, wise men. Deuteronomy 1.13 Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes and I'll make them rulers over you. So Deuteronomy 1.13 Acts chapter 6 pictures how a typical fellowship should exist. The one-man pastor came probably around the time of Irenaeus, Tertullian, possibly Polycarp, or I would say probably around the time of uh, Constantine, uh, Eusebius, and pretty much from then you've had churches run by the one-man, the one-man minister. So he got a group of elders that have been called by Paul, and he's going to give them a special briefing. Look at 18. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I've been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the laying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable, profitable unto you, but have showed you and have talked to you publicly from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, 20, but have showed you and have talked to you publicly and from house to house. This gets cited by the Jehovah's Witnesses to somehow give them credibility for going door to door. But here Paul is speaking to saved people, not unsaved people. I'm not against going door to door, but I don't like people twisting the scripture. Paul is speaking to the elders, saved brothers. He's not speaking to unsaved people. And therefore he's saying, I went house to house, door to door, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, being the Gentiles, of course. Repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's break this down. In fact, keep your hand in Acts 20 and go back to Acts 11, 11, 21. There's a great commotion uh, at the moment, and it's been around for a long time, about what repentance is all about. Uh, Acts 11, look at 21, please. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. You believe and you turn to the Lord, or you turn to the Lord and you believe. Belief in the Lord is repentance. Repentance is belief. It's the same thing. But here, go back to Acts 20. Testifying both to the Jews and also the Greeks, being the Gentiles, repentance toward God. Repentance means a change of mind. Repentance means to be sorry for who you are and what you are. Repentance means a complete about turn. Therefore, the Greeks, the Gentiles, who were completely outside of the remits of God, had no idea who Jehovah was, needed to repent. They needed to, to uh, have a change of mind as to who God was and therefore to have faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. It's twofold, whereas the Jews knew who God was, but yet, according to John chapter 5, I think it is, had no faith in the writings of the word of God. And therefore, they needed to acknowledge that God was God and then come to faith in Lord Jesus Christ. So one last time, 21, and I will conclude in verse 25, uh, 21, excuse me, testifying both to the Jews, witnessing to the Jews, preaching to the Jews, and also the Greeks. 
works. Repentance toward God, acknowledging that he is the one true God. Not many gods, but one God. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what saves you and I, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sola fide, the just shall live by faith. There's no works involved. So therefore, take all these verses together from verses 1 down to 21. You've got Paul very much on a mission, traveling land and sea. And he even decides to go by foot in 13 to get to Ephesus to speed up his time with the brethren. Time is of the essence. Paul is nearing um, the end of his ministry. And yet he's still able to do miracles concerning this young man, Eutychus, from verse 9. And he knows that a resurrection is about to occur. There's no doubt in his mind. And yet later on he would be unable to heal his friend Trophimus from verse 4. And he'd be unable to help his good friend Timotheus, being Timothy, from verse 4. Concerning his ulcers and concerning Trophimus and uh, his ailments. And that shows me that. The gifts were starting to cease before the first century had ended. And that's why when you read the epistles carefully, you don't find any instructions about how to cast out devils or to give sight to the blind, so on and so forth. But here, as we wrap it up, as I say, he's right in Ephesus, and it says also 19, with many tears, Paul was a very emotional man, and temptations being trials, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. The Jews hated Paul. And they still do. And the Muslims hate Paul as well. And I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. He would preach the full oracles of grace to the people that were saved. He wouldn't hold back anything, which is what a true Bible teacher should do. Be cruel to be kind and also to arm the brethren. But have showed you and have taught you publicly from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also the Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. When he arrived in eternity... No doubt he would have received all five crowns. And the Lord would have said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou in the joy of thy Lord. I hope when I die, the Lord says that to me. But uh, I don't think I'm going to get five crowns. If I get one crown or two crowns or three crowns, I'll be pretty surprised, if not uh, shocked. I think one crown will be enough for me. But here, Paul has done his work. And the next time I'll pick it up in Acts, 9, excuse me, Acts 20, verse 22. So Acts 20 verse 22 will be next week's study. Just a quick PS before I sign out. If you are of the persuasion that the, Jew, uh, the Jewish sign gifts are still for today and you are commissioned to preach the gospel, you need to be very careful when you come across people who are sick because you can get their hopes up. And that's why I think sometimes people get caught up in this placebo effect that I'm going to lay hands on you. I'm going to give you healing. I'm going to do this and that for you. And many times it doesn't come. And yet saying that, I will say this, that God does still heal people. And uh, sometimes he will do it straight away. Other times he won't do it straight away. So I just want to make that final PS before I uh, conclude what we looked at this morning. Because I am alarmed that people are still arguing that the gifts are for today. When in reality they're not for today. Go back to what I just said a few moments ago concerning Paul, Trophimus and Timothy. So just be careful because you know if you are of the belief that you can do miracles... Be careful not to get people's hopes up, because as I look at church history, I struggle to see anybody post probably the first century that were able to do any mass healings. On top of that, the apostles did mass healings because they were the apostles, eyewitnesses. They wrote the New Testament. 
know, we're not apostles today. We're not even prophets today. We're just teachers. We're just Bible believers. We're just students. So, as I say, you want to get into this whole realm of healings and casting out devils and prophesying about the future. Be very careful because you are affecting people's lives. People are listening to you. And people are many times making life-changing decisions based on what people are saying to them. And I've seen a lot of these documentaries over the years of so-called faith healers that have fleeced families. I haven't got time to discuss it this morning, but folks have given lots and lots of money to people to be healed. They've arrived sick and they've left sick. And I've mentioned this over the years because the popes that have gone overseas and they've done masses to thousands of people and the sick arrive sick and they're left sick. So it does grieve me that people are arguing and advocating that such healings are for today, so on and so forth. But to really nail down this piece of scripture, repentance is what we need. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Do that if you want to do anything for the Lord. And uh, pray for those that are sick. Intercede for those that are sick. But don't promise healings. Don't promise something that you can't fulfill. Paul was sure when it came to this young man uh, being healed that he would be healed. There was no doubt in Paul's mind. There was no doubt in Elijah's mind or Elisha's mind. But as far as we are concerned, I have got that authority. And I'm not going to give people false hope. So just be mindful, be careful, and uh, don't... Uh, allow yourself to be puffed up and think you're something that you're not. Leave it with the Lord, and if he wants to heal somebody, he will, and if he doesn't, he won't. That's all.